Our scripture reading today is from Ruth, chapter 2, 1 through 13. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And, <clears throat> and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was in the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go and glean in another field, or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. This is the word of the Lord. Hallelujah. His word is good. Well, good morning. How are you? I, I may be in my low register today. I'm at the tail end of a, uh, <clears throat> a little bit of congestion, uh, but praying that I'll be able to make it through. I know listening to a long, raspy sermon is nobody's favorite. Somebody gave me a hot cup of milk. It's really helped. It's been amazing. Just kidding. You don't drink hot milk <laughs> when you're coming up to do some public speaking. Um, they got a hot water and some lemon and tea, so I may sip a little bit, but bear with me. <clears throat> We're going to get into Ruth chapter 2. We'll see if as I get going, things get better or worse. But um, anyway, a weary world and a weary voice rejoices. We're in a, uh, the book of Ruth. We've made it to chapter two, and I'll hopefully make some connections for why we're in this book in the season of Advent. You've heard us say that Advent is a season of a longing, right? Longing and waiting, looking forward to something. It's an honest season where it allows you to, to tap into the questions that you have related to faith, <clears throat> related to Christianity, related to your past, related to the future. Uh, this is a unique season in the Christian calendar for you to be able to be honest with your life with your hurt, with your hope. And uh, this book leads us in that direction. So in part, that's why we're there. But let me get us started. Ruth 2, 1 through 13. There was an opinion piece that came out in 2011 by New York Times author uh, David Brooks. The, uh, the article is entitled, It's Not About You. Here's what he says, and he's addressing recent college graduates. College graduates are told to Follow your passion, chart your own course, march to the beat of your own drummer, follow your dreams and find yourself. 
but this talk is of no help to the central business of adulthood, finding serious things to tie yourself down to. Most successful young people do not look inside and then plan a life. They look outside and find a problem which summons their life. <clears throat> a relative suffers from Alzheimer's and a young woman feels called to help cure that disease. A young man works under a miserable boss and must develop management skills so his department can function. Most people don't form a self and then lead a life. They're called by a problem and the self is constructed gradually by their calling. When you read a biography of someone you admire, it's rarely the things that made them happy that compel your admiration. This is the part we're connecting to Ruth. It's the things they did to court unhappiness, the things they did that were arduous and miserable. Ruth has been courting unhappiness. She is being called by a problem. And what you find in her reaction to this is an incredible life. This is a short book, but what you know about the character of this woman is remarkable. Her problem is that her husband has died, her brother-in-law has died, her father-in-law has died, and she's looking for hope. And she has become a follower of the God of Israel. She is a Moabite, which means that she served other gods, had other traditions. She had a different way of life. God broke into her world through this family that, in a sense, in the first two sermons, in the first two teachings, we said that they're running away from God. They're looking for solutions in Moab. They have been brought to the promised land. These are God's people in God's space. You know what? You don't go to Moab to find solutions to what's going on in your life and in your heart. We've made some connections to that. But God has redeeming and restoring. And she's a woman who's using her life to court unhappiness. She has a beautiful life because she's meeting a problem. And the problem that she's meeting is the loneliness, the lack of future, right? The disappointment and depression of her mother-in-law, Naomi. One of the things that we said last week is that true love always involves a death. This is real love. And you see this in her story, right? She's giving up her future in order to bless and to give to somebody else. But the Christian also believes that when you die to yourself, what you find in response is resurrection. This is the glory of Christianity. This is the glory of the God at the center of Christianity. Yes, death is part of the rhythms and routines. Love always involves a death, namely to yourself. How can I love someone well if I am bent on me? I want my needs met first. No. Marriage doesn't work that way. Family and friendship don't work that way. I have to get myself out of the way so that this other person, this relationship can flourish. You don't have to be a Christian to understand that dynamic. But you see it lived out. And it's not nihilism, it's beautiful. Because death always gives way to resurrection, according to the Christian story. So three things, and really three character traits we're going to see as we get introduced to Ruth, this new character, Boaz. We're going to look at how they've become the people they've become some really unique insights here, especially about Boaz near the end. But three things we're going to look at. Humility, 
in Ruth's life, the use of power in Boaz's life, and then thirdly, grace, all right? So humility, power, and grace. Let's look at verse 2. Verse 2 says this, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, if you're new to the story, Naomi is her mother-in-law. Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Elimelech is her father-in-law. This family has no men, no male protectors. We'll talk about that and some of the unique rituals, routines, and expectations around family, all right? But under this theme of humility, I wanted to share this story really to my shame. When, we, when our family moved from the East Coast to San Diego, this was about nine years ago, I left a beautiful, wonderful church community working in the center city of Boston. I loved Boston. I loved the energy of the city. Uh, we, we knew that our time had come to an end, so we moved to uh, Redeemer. Redeemer is the church that planted our church. And so we're on a new adventure. We had had some hopes of landing in a city on the West Coast, thought it might be San Francisco, uh, but through God's uh, good, good design and providence, he led us to San Diego. I knew nothing about this city, just knew that there was a great church, had a friend who was working there. Some of you know Hunter Benson. We went to seminary together. He was a pastor there. He said, come and consider applying. I ended up getting the job. We moved to San Diego, <clears throat> and on Sunday one, of course, they introduced me as the new pastor at the church. If you've ever been to Redeemer, they have a beautiful patio right outside the main, main space. And uh, there was an older lady whom, of course, I had not met yet. She came and introduced herself to me. And then she asked the question. She said, are you the new youth pastor? Not a bad question, okay? But in the world of, okay, insight. In the world of pastors, you go, I'm not the youth pastor, all right? That's what I'm trying to say. I'm not the new youth pastor. This was a hit to my ego. I love Jonah, by the way, and I love what we're doing with our kids. This is about me. I'm indicting myself, all right? I had come from a great church where I was kind of the number two guy. It was a center city church, a lot of professionals, some unique things happening. I had led a church congregation over on the side, so we were a multi-site church. We had the main campus. I was there for about eight years, went over to the second campus, was a lead pastor. So I walk into this new space. Nobody knows my history, where I've come from. They don't even know my name. And so they ask the question, are you the new youth pastor? And my spirit said, no. I'm not the new youth pastor, but I graciously said, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm a, what am I thinking? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm a better pastor than the youth pastor? I don't know what I was thinking, but I noticed my spirit reacting. There are key moments where your heart is exposed, and my heart was exposed right there. I was able to slow down and have some conversations. My dad's a pastor. He preached here about four or five weeks ago. Some of you got to listen to him. Got to call him and say, hey, this lady said this thing to me, and I felt myself bumping up against her honest question. Are you the new youth pastor? No, I'm not the new youth pastor. You don't know me, but I've come from a great city and a great church. I hope to be able to do some wonderful things for this church. All of it was pride and ego. And you know what my dad said to me? 
He said, you have a moment right here. You can either grow bitter or you can be humble and serve. What are you going to do? It's your choice. Right? What is this new season going to mean for me and my family and my life and my future and my community and my spirit? That's the issue, right? My attitude and my spirit. How am I going to move into this new season of challenge? Am I going to come in and say, i got to prove myself? I'm not your youth pastor. What does that even mean? He says, you have an option right here. Your heart has been exposed. Are you going to get bitter and entitled? Or are you going to be humble? And are you going to serve? We know from this story that Ruth finds herself in a new predicament. Nobody knows her name. Nobody knows her story yet. She's beginning to have a wonderful reputation, as you'll see. But she's coming into new space. But we know that she's in a very difficult situation because we're told that she's gleaning, right? She's gleaning. The Old Testament gleaning laws were set up in order to provide care and dignity for those on the margins of Israelite society. Look at Leviticus 19. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. The gleaning laws essentially say, this family has nothing. You ever seen people who are picking out the cans, right, out of the trash cans? Right, this, is, this is, in a sense, kind of a modern version of gleaning, that people are looking for the edges. But the Old Testament provided a way for people who are on the margins to have dignity and to be woven actually back into relationship and community. A great article that my friend Abe Cho, he's in New York City, works with City to City. He wrote an article on Ruth chapter 2, and he mentions some unique things about the gleaning laws. I'll be quick here. But he says, number one, the gleaning laws make providing for the poor a legal issue, not a benevolence issue. Hmm. This is God's heart for his people. This isn't just like, hey, you can give a little bit of extra out of your surplus. No, God's heart for the poor was leave a margin for them. Don't just make more money for yourself then sell some extra things, and then give some extra money away. He says, no, margin is part of the law, right? The moral law to love and to serve those who are oppressed and have very little. Number two, the gleaning laws provided more than just charity for the poor. It provided the dignity of work. And number three, and most relevant to the story of Ruth, the gleaning laws created social space where the lives of the poor, the working class, and the landowners were brought together. The gleaning laws play such an important part of the narrative, kind of weaves everything together. This is where the collision happens between those who have nothing and those who have a lot. This is where you see Ruth being able to have a future. Her fortune changes out in the field because God, because he's gracious, had established the gleaning laws. Ruth has gone from being well-known in Moab to the welfare lines in Israel. And she accepts her role for the sake of love. That's humility, isn't it? Somebody is willing to accept what life has given them for the sake of love. Lots of things you could qualify on the edge of that. Just let that sit with you for a moment. This woman accepts her role for the sake of love. 
One of the things we're told is that Ruth goes out to glean. Most likely, Naomi was probably 35, between 35 and 45. She's still a young woman able to work. Does Naomi go with her? Naomi does not go with her. See, Ruth is there pouring herself out, and she joyfully, there's no frustration, at least recorded, right? There's nothing here that says that she is frustrated by the unevenness of life. She's kind and helpful and willing to step into this space of uncertainty. I want you to also note that humility is not humiliation. If you're new to Christianity, on the edge of Christianity, or not yet a Christian, some of us kind of buff up against the idea of humility as a Christian value. Humiliation is related to shame and embarrassment and a curvature inward, while humility is related to sacrifice and love and bending towards the other. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, as you've heard. It's not demeaning. It's thinking of yourself less, and it is tremendously freeing. You ever had that moment where you say, I keep getting in the way? I can't stop thinking about myself What changes that? Humility. I'm thinking about others. I'm committing myself to other people and accepting the role that I have been given to play for the sake of love. That's what you see in this woman's life. And the opposite reaction is cancerous. The opposite is demanding a new role, which means, let's be clear, a new life, new circumstances, a new job. There's nothing wrong with a new job. There's nothing wrong with a healthy relationship, but there is a spirit of pride and entitlement that says, I don't like what I've been given. I would like to demand something else and something new. And in an age that emphasizes getting what you want in order to satisfy that inner hunger and to get it as quickly as possible, humility is often an overlooked attribute of the past, but nothing crushes a relationship or saps your joy and thankfulness like a spirit of entitlement. Ruth is a humble woman. She has accepted her role for the sake of love. Now, you know that humility is genuine because it can be fake. As we read from verses 10 and 13, look at verse 10. Her reaction to Boaz, and we can get there in just a moment. Verse 10 says, then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes? that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner. Notice her body posture, right? Notice her, her bowing down her face to the ground. Verse 13, then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. What she's saying is, why are you paying attention to me? I'm not even at the lowest of the low. I'm not even one of your servants, but you have spoken grace. You have spoken kindness. And she she reacts, not with entitlement, like finally somebody has noticed my life and what I have given up. Thank you, Boaz. It's about time somebody sees what I have put in for this woman. She's struggling. I'm struggling. She bows her face to the ground and says, why would you notice even me? Even me. She asked that question more than once. And look, for the Christian, this ought to be even more of a beautiful question that we spend time on when we think about God's noticing of us. If you're a Christian in this room, this question ought to animate your heart. 
Why have I found favor in your eyes, O Lord? Why? What have I done that you would send your son to save me? Look at who I am. I don't deserve to be a part of your family. I'm the sort of person who shows up when you have provided incredibly and somebody asks a kind question about my role in their church and I defend myself saying, I don't want to be your youth pastor. I'm that sort of person. But God breaks in and he says, I know you, I love you, I see you, and I offer grace to you. But your question as a Christian ought to be, what have I done to find favor that you would love me? You know what the answer of Christianity is? Nothing. I hope you believe that. <clears throat> what have I done to find favor in your eyes, oh Lord? Nothing. Wow. That's why this thing is different. I didn't earn my way into your love. I haven't performed my way into your love. I haven't gone to church enough or my Bible enough or been kind to helping older people across the street. I have not done enough good deeds. I do not deserve to earn your favor, but you have given it. Right? This is where a spirit of humility takes off in somebody's life. Part two, use of power. Let's go there. Look at verse one again. Verse one says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan, of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Go to verse 3. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And this is important. I'm going to bring your attention here. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Verse 4 could nearly be translated, and wouldn't you know it, as luck would have it, Boaz just happened to show up when Ruth just happened to make her way to his field. There were a lot of different fields. The text tells us she doesn't know where she's going, but that God's sovereign hand of goodness is guiding her life. She happens to make her way to Boaz's field, who is related to Elimelech. He happens to be a kinsman redeemer, a huge part of this story. He just so happens to be. And he just so happens to show up when Ruth just so happens to be there for a few hours. This is the, the writer's way of saying, this is not luck. The original reader would have said, oh, I see what's happening. Right? This is providence. This is God orchestrating all things, even in the life of somebody who's on the margin right? Bitterness is going to give way to blessing in this story. Hope is on the horizon for this woman. Verse 4, and then we get introduced to Boaz. This is what I love about Boaz. Boaz is introduced to us as a worthy and a righteous man. There is no better description of a human being. Many of us have been turned off by the idea of righteousness because it has a tag word on the front, self Righteous. Many of you go, man, don't describe me as righteous. What you're, what you're essentially saying is you're describing me as self-righteous, moralistic, holier than thou. That is not what this word means biblically, all right? This word is an incredible word that carries social implications. Bruce Waltke says this, a righteous person is someone who is willing to disadvantage themselves in order to advantage the entire community. 
willing to disadvantage themselves for the sake of other people. Righteousness is social. It's about good and fair treatment of other people. And then, of course, we get a good sense of who this man really is, this man's heart and his character, when he arrives on the scene at his field in verse 4. Glance at it. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. All of the commentators say this is unscripted, spontaneous, and it's natural. This man speaks what is in his heart. This is why we start to love Boaz. The first thing he says is, the Lord be with you. This is a man of deep faith. This is why he is described as a worthy man, not worthy of God's favor. It's just saying that he's a good man, that he has standing, that he has strength. The question we're wondering is, how's he going to use it? How's he going to use his power? How's he going to use his strength? Jesus affirms this idea in Luke 6.45, that we speak from our heart. Luke 6.45 says, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. This guy shows up. He's talking to his employees. You know what he says? God's good. Bless you. Do you know the Lord? Do you know that he's with you? I'm with you. I follow him. I'll treat you well. The Lord bless you. And you can tell there's reciprocation. They have such admiration for this man. They, they say back to him, and Lord bless you too. Right, so there's this beautiful thing coming out of his life, not in a holier-than-thou church moment, in the field, right, in the normal aspects of his life. But what's beautiful about Boaz's life is a consistency between word and action. There would have been a huge social gap between where Ruth was and then the place that Boaz holds in the story and in society. I think we have a chart that may help us do we have that with all 16? Yes. Ranking of social status in ancient Israel. You see the list here. You see where Boaz? He's at number four. He's up there near the top. King, tribal leader, clan leader, maybe a subgroup leader. Boaz is probably number three or number four. Then look at the list. Father, older father, eldest son, son, wife, daughter, servants, resident alien, male foreigner, and then Ruth female foreigner. Huge, huge gap. What is this man who's got power? He's got influence. He's got clout. He's got employees. How is he going to treat this woman? How is he going to engage with her? What we see from Boaz is a refusal to separate his use of power from the aspect of love, all right? Simple as that. He's got power, but he will not separate it from this aspect of love. Libby Groves, she writes this. The presence of a male represented more than protection in the ancient Near East. If a male was with Ruth, it declared her status and said that she was properly fitted into a family structure and was a respectable woman. Should be, she should be treated as such. If she was unaccompanied, it signaled that she was not a respectable woman. It was fine to treat her any way you choose. The presence of a male communicated that the family she belonged to cared enough about her to not to send her out 
without a chaperone. If you messed with her, her family would come after you. If she was alone, then either she didn't have a family to protect her or they didn't care about her, so you could probably molest her with impunity. Huge social disparity. How's this righteous man going to show up? Is he actually righteous? Is he going to use his power to love? Is he going to use his power for himself? Paul Miller says, without a male protector, Ruth is sexually vulnerable. Without money, she is financially destitute. Without a friend, she is lonely. And without her country, you see, she is open to prejudice. She has no protector, husband, tribe, family, or food. This is why Boaz says in verse 5, whose woman is this? Notice, we would probably never ask that. Whose person is that? Mm, Strange question for us. We'd probably say, who's that? But he says, who does she belong to? Who's protecting this woman? Who's chaperoning her? Who's accompanying her? Who's saying that she's a worthy woman? And what the, the response is, essentially, nobody. There's nobody here for her. There were a bunch of men in her family. They're all gone. She has accompanied her mother-in-law, Naomi. She's Ruth the Moabite. They keep using that language, Ruth the Moabite, so we don't think that she's an insider. She's an outsider. Huge disparity. What's he going to do? Quickly, a couple things. Notice the ways in which Boaz uses his power to unleash love in Ruth's life. I love this. He protects her emotionally, physically, relationally. Look at the first one, emotionally. I love that he eliminates ambiguity in her life. Like, you've been to places where you're like, do they really want me here? Or should I be staying did I come too early? Am I staying too long? Like, and you're not sure. You're stuck in kind of like an ugly gray, all right? He eliminates ambiguity for her in verse 8. Look at what it says. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field. Do not leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty... Go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. He's like, I want you here. Let me be very, very clear. Don't look anywhere else. He's not like, you know what? At the end of the day, if we got a little left, we'd love to bless you. Glad you came. We'll see you later. Then she's insecure. Then she's not sure. Am I really welcome here? He goes, I'm going to eliminate it. There are seven commands in just a couple of verses, and all of them are affirming her welcome into his space. Number one, he protects her emotionally. Number two, he protects her physically by prohibiting anyone from sexually exploiting or abusing her. He says, I have spoken with the young men. No one will touch you. No one will harm you. If they do, I'm going to step in. They mess with you, they mess with me. You remember that gap? Why would he cross that gap? Because here you see the character of somebody who says, I'm going to use my power to love. Lastly, he protects her relationally. When he invites her to drink of these vessels, he's not just satisfying her thirst. He's welcoming her into community. Think of all the symbolism of the drinking fountains during the civil rights, right? These separate but equal laws. Do we have that picture just by way of reminder? 
We understand what drinking and the invitation to drink in a certain way from a certain vessel means. This isn't just saying, hey, look at what we've done. We're quenching your thirst. No. No, he's saying, come and drink from my vessel. Right? You, the outsider, come and be a part of my table. He is building her up relationally. He's protecting her all over the place. And by using his power for love, Boaz is drawn down into the need. You see that? This is what humility does. It draws you down into the need where you get to know people at the bottom and you get to express love. You get to use love in the ways that is intended to be power used for somebody else's good. You know that in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus is tempted, the temptation is for Jesus to use his power without the ambition of love connected to it. That's what's going on in Luke chapter four. The devil knows that Jesus is powerful. So he says, go ahead and use it for your own reputation and your own good. See those stones? Turn them into bread and satisfy your own heart. You see the top of that temple? Go to the top, tallest building around. Throw yourself off of it. God has promised that he won't let you hit the ground. It might get Jesus thousands of followers instantly, but it would have led him to avoidance of his full humanity, and his full humanity was taking him to the cross for you. He didn't want love without power. He didn't want to use power without love. This is the temptation. This room is filled with people who have power, physical power, emotional, mental, intellectual, spiritual strength. As a follower of Christ, it is your ambition and your duty and your calling to bend that power in the direction of love. You know what abuse is, right? It's power without love. And Jesus says, that is not my way. This is not how you engage. This is not how you build friendship. This is not how you build community. Boaz was a righteous man who protected and served Ruth when most people like him would have avoided her to protect himself. He comes and he uses his power for good. Here's what I want to conclude. It's a question of how, okay? This is amazing. You're going to love this. I love this. I was like texting a lot of people this week, all right? Some people who know a lot about the Bible. Here's a question I asked them. Do you know much about Boaz? What do we know about his previous life that would shape him into the sort of person who wants to give himself away, who is so cognizant of the needs of the marginal and the people on the sidelines that he would use his life, that he would position his power in order to notice Ruth the outsider at the bottom of the barrel. The question is, how did he become that sort of person? Our church is asking that question a lot. We are a church that values deep interior formation. How did Boaz become the sort of person who loves like that? Okay, what do we know about this man? You get a clue, ready, in Jesus' genealogy from Matthew chapter 1 where we read this, that Boaz's mother was none other than Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute. Let me make the connection for you. Matthew 1. 
This is looking at the genealogy. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. Here's how my friend Abe Cho put it. Boaz, as a young boy, was formed by a mother who knew exactly what it was like to be despised, rejected, marginalized, and vulnerable. And he was raised by a mother who also knew what it was like to be redeemed, forgiven, embraced, and completely transformed by the undeserved kindness of God. That's his life. I mean, he knew the story of love and grace from the margin and for the margin. Right? He knew the story of what took place in Jericho. He knew that his mother was the only survivor in the conquest of that city. He knew her vocation. He knew that God chose to save a woman on the margins, on the outside. And this story shaped the mental maps of this young man. This is who he became. See, when he sees Ruth enter into his field, he's drawn to her because this is his story, right? That's my mom. That's my mom's story. I grew up in this space. Do you see the way in which this woman was embraced? Her life was transformed, that she received grace, that she comes into a new space, new community, new friendships. And yes, she's got a history, but in this space, our lives change forever. It shaped him so that when he saw Ruth, he was drawn to use what he had to love her. It was his story. And if Ruth introduces us to a righteous kinsman redeemer, ready? Shaped deeply by the love of a mother in Bethlehem. At Christmas, we find the story of another poor mother and her son, the one who would grow to be the true righteous one, the great redeemer, Jesus Christ. Every story whispers his name, every one of them. The Bible is about him. If what took place in the life of Boaz and Ruth warms your heart, imagine what it could be like for you to step into the story of Jesus. This is how big the narrative is. This is what you're stepping into as a Christian. This is not thin and weak and irrelevant for the 21st century. No, this is what the 21st century is longing for, and you may be longing for it today. My question for you is this. Do you want to experience the true meaning of life and Christmas? I bet you do. You can right now. Right now. If you are outside of Christianity, this may be God's way of saying, you have put God in a little box Every story whispers his name. It's grace that transforms a life. You see it in his life. You see it in anybody who's ever said, I want to be an apprentice of Jesus. I'd like to put my life under his life. Guess what? That's a death. But guess what happens when you do? You come back to life. That's Christianity. 
It can happen for you today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace to allow me to finish this teaching today. I certainly wanted to be able to show people part of Boaz's story. Because that story is my story. Anybody who is connected to Jesus Christ by faith, this is their story. I am part of the lineage and family of Jesus I've been welcomed into his family. This means that Ruth and Boaz are part of my story. This is the history of Christianity, people on the margins being loved and welcomed because of grace. Lord Jesus, the kinsman redeemer that we see in Boaz would come again. And he wouldn't simply redeem by marrying. He would redeem by dying. We cannot divorce Christmas from Easter. It's one story. We pray that our hearts will be drawn into it, that we would know your love, that we would know your, your heart. I pray, Lord, if there's anybody in this room right now who has caricatured you, I pray that you would bust that paradigm. I pray that you would break out of that little box that they have put you in. I pray that you would help us to know the true and living God. Lord Jesus, as we come to this table and to this meal, we pray that you would meet with us and give us grace again. In Jesus' great name we pray, amen.